Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're here with us this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of James. Or uh, if this is your first time and you haven't grabbed one of our scripture journals, just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we'll have somebody that wants to pass those out to you. That's our free gift to you. We love the Word of God here. We want you to have that. Uh, parents, if you want to go ahead and dismiss your kids to Aletheia Jr., uh, they'll be over here uh, ready to go to uh, the kids' time. And while you're either getting a scripture journal or turning over to uh, the book of James. Um, I'm going to ask that you guys humor me for just a moment uh, as I tell a story about something that occurred a couple of years ago uh, in our house. And yes, I do have my wife's permission before I share this story. Um, so uh, we had just moved to Gainesville uh, relatively recently. So this is probably almost a decade ago at this point. And I was working out of my home office, uh, which was also known as our garage. And Jackie came out into the garage to ask me a question, and she just kind of begins to laugh at me. And, um, you know, that's a great way to start a conversation. Uh, it's just to have someone laughing at you at the start of the conversation. So I'm, I kind of gave her this puzzled look of, why are you laughing at me? And she goes, what are you doing? And um, I was sermon writing. And I use that term loosely because at the time I was also like on a Zoom call or a, f a phone call with somebody, uh, and um, I had a podcast playing in the background uh, at the same time on the PC. So I was trying to do all three things at the same time. And so I just was like, um, you know, I'm sermon writing. She's like, what? <laughs> like, how are you sermon writing while talking to your friend on the phone and listening to a podcast at the same time? And I was like, I'm multitasking. And she goes, no, you aren't. <laughs> you aren't doing anything. You have too many things going on right now that you aren't doing any of these tasks well because you aren't focused. And, and so, you know, like most foolish men that have only been married for a few years, I began to defend myself. And I was like, you know, hey, like I, like I know you think that, but I'm actually like, think of this, like in this hour, I'm going to get all of these things done. And she goes, no, you aren't. And then she looks at me with probably the most like intense look that I think my wife's ever given me at any given time, other than like in serious, serious fights and just goes, you are not smart enough to multitask. Stop. And turns and walks out of my office, aka the garage, and back into the house. And like many things I've learned to come to discover over the years that we've been together, she was right. And, 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 and listening carefully and being attentive and actually being focused on what you're doing um, is, a, is an incredibly important skill and thing to develop. Uh, it's important for learning. It's important for conversations. It's important even in performing a, a task like writing a paper or finishing a, a, a task at work or whatever it may be, that doing that task without distractions and listening well and being focused is super important. And you may be wondering while I'm sharing that, and the reason is this, that the text we see here in James chapter 1 this morning in the second half of this chapter is, is actually going to talk extensively about this idea. If, um, if you remember back to what we saw James talk about last week as we started our study in this letter, uh, James was writing to encourage 
these various uh, groups or churches of Christians uh, that were experiencing persecution and had been dispersed um, throughout Israel and, and really some of the um, Middle East. And one of the things he mentions to them is that he is encouraging them to really, in reality, face these trials and this persecution that they're experiencing head on. That, that instead of trying to run from it or find solutions to it, that his encouragement to them is to face these trials head on because God was going to use these trials to produce um, steadfastness and in that steadfastness bring them to a place of spiritual maturity, completeness, or wholeness. That these trials that they were experiencing actually had a really specific purpose in their lives according to God and that through that, God promises to come alongside them both through faith and through wisdom to see them through that trial and produce a greater level of steadfastness, trust, and faith in the promises of God. And so in light of the, the context of what we talked about last week, when we then move into our text this morning, we'll notice that James is shifting slightly, but he still has this idea of remaining steadfast in their trials in mind. And he's, he's going to move from tackling the troubles and, and the trials that they're facing with joy and wisdom to a very practical call on how they might be able to remain steadfast in their difficulties. And that's going to be this. That they're called to rightly respond to God's word. And if they do so, that will assist them in remaining steadfast through their difficulties. So we're going to see three things this morning on the, the right way to respond to the word of God. And we're going to kind of have three different uh, points that James is going to make. And then as we look at those points, we'll kind of unpack each one of them. But let me share them with you first on the front end so you kind of know what to be looking for as we're working through the text this morning. So the, so the first one is the importance of listening to God's word so that we might know God's will. That, that God actually calls us to hear and listen to his word so that we might be able to respond to it. The second thing we're going to see is that actually doing what we hear or doing God's will matters. And then the third thing he's going to share with them is three marks that we should see in those that are obedient doers of the word of God. So look, starting in verse 19 with me as we kind of unpack this first part on the importance of listening to God's word, to know God's will. He says, no this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." 
So as he's making this transition, right, he says, know this. And, and what he's basically sharing there is that he wants the readers to pay close attention to what he's about to share with us. And he gives three commands on listening to the Word of God. And, and these three commands will have applications outside of just following and knowing the will of God. So, so if you leave here this morning with these three uh, kind of skills or following these three commands that God gives you, here's kind of a promise I'll give to you. Relationships and conflict are going to go well with, for you. I'm not saying they're going to be perfect, but there will be a blessedness that comes from responding in this way. So look at what he says. He says th- three things. He tells them to be quick to hear or to listen. He tells them to be slow to speak. And he tells them to be slow to anger. If I was going to put what James is saying here in verse 19 into modern language, it would go something like this. In order to live out the implications of our faith and to remain steadfast in trials, we must learn to listen well first. I mentioned this last week, and I'll, and I'll, I'll repeat it again. Trials are, are difficult for us, not just because of the reality of the trial before us, but because of our response to them most of the time. That most of the time when we're faced with a trial or difficulty or suffering, one of the things that we tend to do psychologically or naturally is that we become self-consumed. And, and with that, that attitude of, of being self-absorbed, self-consumed, and an increased focus on ourself, it leads then to a decreased listening to other sources of wisdom that may be solutions to the problem we're facing. You know, you're, you're so consumed by your own suffering, the tragedy in it, the difficulty in it, the trial in it, that you can't see ways of escape or assistance that have been given to you by God throughout that trial. And what happens is, and this is the weird thing kind of psychologically about us as human beings, is that even though you may be drowning in sin, difficulty, trial, the more self-absorbed you become, the more self-consumed you become, the more overly confident you become in your own ability to see your way out of the problem. If you don't believe me, right, ask anyone that's walked through a difficult season at any point in their life and just ask some pointed questions on how they took counsel from others. I've been a pastor long enough to have seen in people that Oftentimes, we may not be the author of the beginning of a trial or difficulty, but we are often the author of continued suffering or difficulty once we're in that trial. That our own self-absorbed mindset or our overconfidence in our own ability to do things leads to drowning out wisdom and counsel that has been given to us by God to see our way out of it. And often what this this leads to, especially if you've been in a relationship married for any season of time, is that if you are in a trial and your spouse or someone you know, it doesn't have to be a spouse, is trying to help you, their counsel, if if it goes against the way you want to go, will lead to then relational drift or conflict inside of the relationship. 
And what often gets kind of born out of that overconfidence uh, in self is anger, which is exactly why James lists these things in the order that he does. He goes, hey, if you are in the midst of difficulty, like you are the, the, those that are receiving this letter from him, you need to be slow to speak, you need to be quick to listen, and you need to be slow to anger. Because that is not often the default posture of our hearts when we're facing trial and difficulty. And if any of you have a social media account in this room, you know it's true. The moment that conflict or um, discussion or debate arises, what often arrives two minutes into the debate, and I use that term lightly, right? Anger, vitriol, ad hominem attacks, right? Whatever language you want to use to describe that is how that comes out. And often this happens to us because we haven't listened properly and therefore don't understand the counsel of others because we're too entrenched in our own assessment and opinion of the situation. And one of the things that we see throughout James's letter is the amount of practical wisdom that he gives is, uh, is, is very high compared to other New Testament writings. As a matter of fact, a lot of what he says can, is, is either taken directly from Jesus or can find its traces all the way back in the book of Proverbs. Um, if you turn over to Proverbs chapter 17 with me, right, Solomon says this in verse 28. He says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Right, my grandfather used to have this saying, and I don't know where he got it. I'm sure he stole it from somewhere, but he used to say, Son, better to be quiet and let people think you are a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And I'll let you guess often when he chose to use that, but it was when I was speaking and leaving no doubt for him of how foolish I truly was. See, failure to listen and, and keep quiet often leads to anger. And once anger has moved its way into discord or relational disharmony, it's really, really hard to then begin the process of logically working through the trial and difficulty at hand because the emotion has taken over at that point. And I know how some of you, so, so, by the way, for those of you that are in here this morning that tend to be conflict avoidant, you, you're like singing the praises to God right now. You're like, I knew my personality would finally be looked at as something good. And for those of us that are like myself that prefer to just dive face on into debate and conflict, right, this is really, really hard for us, right? And as we read this and we see this, we'll, 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 we'll begin to like create defenses, right? Some of you in here this morning might even be in conflict with somebody in this room this morning and you're angry at them, right? And you're, you're saying to yourself, well, is anger wrong? Like, didn't Jesus get angry? Right? These are the types of things and the places that our mind runs to when we start trying to self-justify our actions and things that are going on. And, and I would say this. Yes, Jesus did absolutely get angry. Right, let's, go, let's go look at Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 14. Jesus is, is um, 
with these children and his disciples are trying to prevent them from coming. And, and look at what he says in verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's another term for upset or angry or frustrated. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. If you turn over to Mark chapter 3, there's another example of this. He's healing people on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are frustrated that he's not observing this, the Sabbath properly. And look at Jesus' response in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And so, if you find yourself sitting here this morning and you, and you hear what, what James is saying and you're trying to justify your anger and your actions by saying, well, like Jesus became angry and there are examples of righteous anger and, and therefore it's okay for me to be angry in this situation because that, that's where I'm going. So I don't need to be slow to anger because it's a righteous anger. And here's what I would say in response to that. Yes, anger is certainly something that Jesus experienced, and it's certainly something that we can experience righteously, but many times our examples of anger that I see should not be considered righteous anger because it's not with the same response of Jesus Christ. Look, look closely. Don't just read the fact that Jesus is angry in those two examples that I gave you. But I want you to think deeply about any time you see Jesus become indignant or frustrated or angry, what his response is. Because what is righteous anger? Is it just the emotion itself or is the response to it important as well? Right? When we see Jesus Christ become angry and upset, it's not anger that is unchecked, but it's anger motivated by compassion for the lowly and the helpless. And very, very rarely do I see things, at least today, labeled by professing Christians as anger, actually find itself rooted in that particular instance or situation. It's anger at being misrepresented. It's anger at having something said that they don't like to hear. It's anger at truth being assaulted. But notice, notice what's going on here with Jesus, right? right? Go back to Mark chapter 3 and think through that example. There is a teaching and a doctrine being established there in Mark chapter 3. And it's the doctrine of the Sabbath and how to approach it properly. But what motivates Jesus' anger there? It's not his desire to be right. It's not his desire for the truth. No, he's grieved for the man with the withered hand. And his anger is that there would be rules and systems put in place to prevent him from reducing the suffering of others. For what we see in Scripture is that anger that is righteous rarely manifests itself against the oppressor, but is often displayed in acts of service and love towards the oppressed. And so if we're going to take a step back and we're going to push back on what James has to say here, because certainly James, I do not believe, means 
to be monolithic here in what he's describing. I don't believe he's trying to create a polemic against what Jesus says and saying that anger is always wrong. But what he's saying is, is that wisdom would dictate to us that in trials and difficulties and relational strife, the way forward in those difficulties is to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because most anger is not manifested in the way that Christ manifested his anger. And so as James shares with us the practical side of this, right, go down and look at verse 21 with me. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And he's giving them some, some practical wisdom here. And he's saying, hey, if you're, if you're in a place where you're like, well, I don't know what to listen to, right? I don't know how to be slow to speak and quick to listen, right? He's saying this. Followers of Jesus start by listening to the word of God. That is our starting point. That we listen to God's word and from that we learn how we're to respond in trials and difficulties and struggles, right? And there are practical ways that we could do this, right? One is that you should be, if you are a professing Christian here this morning, studying the Bible on your own. You should be taking time to not just read God's word, but actually sit and ponder on it. You know, one of the things that I see happen regularly is, is people will uh, get on reading plans or whatever else, and what, what that becomes is a way to just check off a to-do list. And one of my suggestions to people sometimes is, hey, toss that reading list out, toss that out, and just take as long as you need to to go through a book of the Bible. I... This, this study that we're doing in the book of James comes from a time where uh, I needed a reset on just listening to God's word, and it took me five months to get through the book of James. It's not a very big book, guys. I was really slow. Right? What, what we see James encouraging us to do is go to the word of God and just sit and listen. Don't argue with what you see. Don't wrestle with what you see. But on your own, study the Bible. And then another encouragement I would give to us would be to study the Bible corporately. Taking time to reflect and discuss what God's Word is teaching you and what it is teaching others. You know, every week here at the, at the end of our service, we do just a couple announcements to let you guys know what's going on because we get accused all the time of not doing that, even though we have about four different methods of communication to what is happening around this church. Um, if you don't know what they are, uh, it's the group me. If you're not in the group me, get in the group me. Uh, we send out a weekly email. We give announcements up here on the stage every week. Uh, and we have social media accounts that send out all of our information. So I am not lying. There are four avenues that we disseminate information about what is going on in this church every week. And inevitably, I know what's going to happen. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing something. And someone's going to be like, well, I didn't hear about that. What's happening? And I'm like, which one of the four did you ignore? 
But one of the things we announce every week is getting plugged into a gospel community at Aletheia Church. And that is not because we desire for the numbers of people in these groups just to go up so that we can gather more people. No, it's because we believe that through fellowship and time spent together with other believers, as you're discussing what God is impressing upon you, that you will hear from God and be motivated to follow him. And if we take seriously what James says here in verse 21, the promise is that listening will lead us to knowing God's will because it comes through the implanted word of God. And if we will listen, we will see that listening alone is not enough, but we must respond to what we see in the word of God. All right, look at what he says starting in verse 22. This is probably the most famous verse in all of the book of James. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So a lot of words for James to make kind of one big promise to us. And in that promise also tie to it a command. Right? He says, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Why? Well, he's going to explain why by sharing with us an illustration using a mirror. He basically says this, right? So, so if you're reading that, that illustration of the mirror and you're struggling to hear what James is trying to say, let me try to unpack it for you. If you, so imagine yourself, if you were to look in a mirror and see, you know, you're getting ready to go somewhere, you're going to a job interview, you're going to work, you're going on a sales call, uh, you're going to class for a group presentation, whatever it may be. You're standing in front of a mirror, and you see that you look a hot mess. You're like, man, my hair's all disheveled. Um, I, my makeup doesn't look right. Um, I need to brush my teeth, right? A mirror can display all of that to you, right? And if you saw that you looked disheveled and messed up, what would you probably do? Fix it, right? I, I hear some people whispering. It's not, a hard, it's not a hard answer. Go ahead, just say it out loud, right? You would fix it, right? If you're getting ready to go on a date, you would definitely fix it. Okay, so you would fix the issue. Why? Because that's the point of mirrors. We install mirrors in our home so that if we stand in front of them, we can see if we look disheveled or not. Jackie's like, well, Kevin, you have not stood in front of a mirror enough. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. But the reality is, is that if you are standing in front of a mirror and you see that you look disheveled and then you did nothing, what would we think about you? You're a fool. Anybody ever, like, like, this was a line to me in high school by one of my teachers one time. I, I was completely disheveled or whatever else, and I'm not, I'm not making this story. Her name was Erin Dyke. She was my high school um, statistics teacher, and I came in looking a hot mess one morning. My hair was all messed up, and she's like, did you look in a mirror this morning? That's what she said to me. I was like, yeah. And the look on her face of just, like, pure shock and disgust 
Why did she respond that way? She's like, how could anybody look at themselves in a mirror and walk out of the house the way you did? She assumed, rightly I might add, that I was a fool. It would be one thing to walk out of the house having not looked at myself and not knowing that I looked terrible. It's another thing to have completely ignored it after having seen myself. And James says that the same way that a man looks in a mirror and sees issues and doesn't fix them as thought a fool is the same way that if someone looks at God's word and doesn't respond to it is a fool. See, James's point is that God's word is like a mirror. It shows you who you really are. It shows you who God really is. And it shows all of us how far off both God's standard, but also just the way that life will go well with us, we really are. And he says, to hear God's word and to, to listen to God's word and to not obey and respond to it is like a person that has messed up hair or someone who hasn't done their makeup and look correctly and looks in a mirror and then doesn't fix it. It's foolishness. Guys, this book, if you follow it, is a Trevor Trove of wisdom on how life might go well for you. It is not a promise that everything will go well, but it is a guide for wisdom on how to respond to the trials and sufferings of life. Right, James gives two promises, even in these very verses, about God's word and the freedom that it offers. Right, he says in verse 21, that it offers salvation. But then if you go down to verse 25, he says that he will be blessed in his doing. That following God's word leads to the salvation of your soul and blessed in obedience. I bet we could take a poll walking around downtown Gainesville today and ask people if they wanted assuredness of life going uh, well for them and to feel blessed, I bet we would get almost a 100% response of if we could offer that to somebody, they would say yes. And yet oftentimes, even as believers, we have the guide in front of us and we don't follow it. And to not respond to God's words and commands and will for our lives is the same folly and foolishness of someone who stands in front of a mirror and doesn't fix things. And notice what he says. He says that we deceive ourselves. He's not just saying that we're deceived, but that we are self-deceived. That we lie to ourselves thinking that we have things figured out and that we know the right way when the reality is that we don't. And basically, James is saying, you're the author of your own misery if you know God's word is telling you to do something and you refuse to obey and follow it. This is why God's word can be so hard for us to, to handle sometimes. 
Because sometimes it's not super kind. Whereas it unveils the reality of what is really going on in our lives. As I was reading that verse this past week, I was reminded of the great philosopher from Seinfeld, George Costanza, who once told his friend Jerry on a lie detector test, remember Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Right, basically what he was saying there is if, if you can so deceive yourself, you can even beat a lie detector machine. But you can't beat the word of God. Funny advice, funny moment for a comedy, terrible life advice. And just for those of you guys unfamiliar with the show, George is the one that clearly is the hottest mess of the four of them. They're all a mess, but he's the worst. But the promise that we see from James is if we obey, we are promised that we will be blessed in our doing. Now, this is really hard, right? I, I'm going to pause here for a second because I think there is a strand of thought that has worked its way inside of the church that would push back even against the very thing that James teaches here. And I would also say that we are, our natural proclivity as human beings and the culture around us is to push back on any push or call to obedience and rules in our lives. If you don't believe me that human beings are naturally bent towards not wanting to be told what to do, I have some kids that I would love you to watch for free so you can run a science experiment. I'll give you a, an entire afternoon with my two boys, and I'll let you establish the, the ground rules and the procedures of the way things are going to go that afternoon, and then you can let me know what you discovered from watching them. And Jackie and I will enjoy a date. But culture... and defines freedom as the absence of restraint. That's what they would define freedom as. And there's a reason why culture defines freedom that way. It's because it's the natural bend of what our hearts want. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in charge of everything, and we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. The Bible defines freedom a little bit differently. Right, scripture would define true freedom and blessedness as living our lives within the proper restraints or environment that we've been placed in. If any of you guys have spent any amount of time at Aletheia Church, you've probably heard Pastor Daniel talk about this before. This is something that Pastor Daniel regularly brings up when he's preaching or teaching to us. And one of the examples he's given is, is this. He says that a fish can be freed from the water. That, that full freedom from restraint would be removing the fish from, from the water. But that the moment you remove the fish from that restraint, you would also kill it. Because it's not designed to live outside of water. Mankind removed from the proper boundaries of God's word and how he's designed us certainly would have its restraints removed, but will also lead to death which is exactly what God told Adam and Eve would happen in Genesis chapter 2. Sam Albury, the Anglican priest, puts it this way, our own freedom is only found when we are in the environment in which we were designed to flourish in. And that is in obedience to God's word.
God's commands are right. And for those that have followed God any period of time, they lead to rejoicing and they enlighten the eyes. Throw Psalm 19.8 up on the screen for me so we can take a look at that. This is David crying out to God as he's kind of just discovered that following God and his way leads to true blessedness and joy. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He doesn't write and say, hey, God's laws and commands are restricting me and restraining me from being my authentic self. No, he says, Actually, following God's commands are for my good. They are pure. They enlighten the eyes, and they cause me to rejoice in my heart. We are called by God to listen to his word and to obey and do his word. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. And then James is going to go back and he's going to give us three marks practically of what obedience to listening to God's word and then doing God's word would look like. Let's look at what those three things would be. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Three marks listed there. The first one is this, control the tongue. Our speech reveals to us oftentimes what is actually going on in our hearts. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. I always really love um, talking to unbelievers, especially when um, we're discussing the Bible and they find out I'm a pastor and and they'll ask me questions of like, you know, like how how can you believe and trust all that? And we'll we'll get to talking. And a common phrase that, that, that gets shared with me when I'm sharing my faith with somebody or I'm talking about my role as a pastor or, or what I've come to discover in my own life and, and what God has taught me is, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not cool with all the rules, but I, I think Jesus had some really good teachings and, and we're good with following those. And I, I just always, it's really, really hard for me not to immediately start laughing at them. Because this example in Matthew chapter 5 is a prime example of how people hate the restraints in the Old Testament, but they've never actually listened to what Jesus said or taught. All right, look at, look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Starting at verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so, so Jesus is quoting what there? You know, like the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall not murder. Okay, so, so so far, right, Jesus is like, well, you've heard them say this. Let's see what he says next. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, let's, let's pause there for just a second. That standard and teaching from Jesus is a heck of a lot higher than the standard that he originally presented in the first part of his argument, yes? 
So, so when, we're, when we're being told, like, hey, I think Jesus is a good teacher and he says good things, I, I would submit to you, if you're here this morning, and that's one of the things you're thinking through, you need to seriously consider what Jesus says, because I would say his standard's a heck of a lot one than just reading word for word the Levitical law. Look at what he says after this. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Right, here's, here's what Jesus is trying to say. Our speech calling somebody a fool, being, being angry with them or whatever else, reveals the posture of our hearts towards others. And murder may be obviously the final straw in that anger, but it begins and manifests itself first in argumentation and calling somebody a fool. And Jesus is saying, God cares so much more deeply than just the actions, but on a deeper level, the heart. And if we can deal with the heart issue, we don't need to deal with the later issue that comes from that, which might be murder. And this, things like this matter, right? Talking to somebody and calling them a fool and being angry with them matters because that other person is a human being made in the image and likeness of God just like you are. And to yell at and to slander and to judge and to th hurl insults at another human being is to hurl insults at someone who was created by your creator. And it matters. It matters deeply to God. So what James is saying here is that if you want to know if you're being a doer and not just a hearer of the word, examine your speech. Is it uplifting, encouraging, and true? Or is it littered with complaints, frustration, and slander? For that will reveal much to you. He goes on to say that true religion, right, un undefiled, right, as he, as he calls it there, is to serve widows and orphans. So the second kind of mark of obedience we see that he points out to us here is concern for the helpless. A better question is, is your posture of service regularly towards those who cannot repay you? Right? Widows and orphans in, in, in Jesus' day and time had almost no way to provide even for basic daily necessities in their lives. And if you provided for them, you almost assuredly would not be repaid. And so the point James is making here is that we follow the example of Jesus to serve those who cannot repay us. Guys, if we understand what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus left the throne room of heaven and put on human flesh so that he might die in our place for the forgiveness of sins and offer us new life in him. If we, if we are to accept that as true, what we're saying is, is that Jesus took a posture of service towards us who could never repay him. 
Right, Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, right, is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And James's point to us is if you can look at your life and examine the way you serve and provide for others, are you serving and providing for those who cannot repay you? Because that's a better mark and indicator if you're really following the heart of Christ or not. And then lastly, he says to avoid worldliness. He says to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I submit that primarily what James is talking about here is he's talking about being unstained from economic worldliness because the the context of what he's talking about there is both with widows and orphans, but when you get to James chapter 2, he's going to also talk about favoritism and, and how there's an economic component to that. Pastor Daniel will unpack that for you guys next week. But James's point is that there is a blessedness that comes through obedience for those that do not care about how much they accrue in this life, but instead realizing that Jesus is the great treasure and prize of this world and that we look forward to an eternity with him, not how much we can accrue in this life. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning and ask you to reflect on is this. Am I hearing the word of God and doing? Or am I deceiving myself? See, according to James, if I was to put a modern day spin on this argument that he's making, just coming to church, claiming to be a follower of Jesus, claiming to agree with his word, is not enough. And I don't mean it's enough to save you, but in the end, it will show what James calls later a dead faith if that's all you have. He says, really what's going on is, is if you're just a, an attender at church and you're just claiming to be a follower of God, but you're not actually agreeing with his word and following it in obedience, that that is actually a life of self-deception where you say you follow God, but you don't actually follow him because you don't actually obey him. And in that, that life leads to not growing as a, a follower of Jesus. It leads to a lack of spiritual maturity or completeness or wholeness that we talked about last week. And what ends up coming from that is confusion, right? I don't understand why I'm struggling. I don't understand why I'm not steadfast. I can't figure out or fathom what's going on. And what comes from that confusion is unmet expectations. And from those unmet expectations, frustration and anger, the very things that James said would occur if we were not slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. What James shares with us here is there's a better way. And the better way is to hear and do what we've heard. Because there, there's beauty in seeing God say something, trust that promise, follow it, and see the truthfulness of it lived out. 